Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a new weekly podcast shining a spotlight on Australian fiction. My name is Claudine Tonellis. As a writer and avid reader, I love chatting about books. And in this podcast, I'll chat to authors, publishers and readers, giving you, dear listener, insight into what's hot on the Australian fiction scene. So if you're looking for your next book recommendation or just want to know more about Aussie fiction writers, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and enjoy. Frankly, listeners, I'm a little starstruck by my next guest. She's the author of six novels in total, a USA Today best-selling author off the back of titles such as The Paris Seamstress, along with A Kiss from Mr Fitzgerald and Her Mother's Secret. She's written sweeping tales of love and war, of a bygone era when women faced nearly insurmountable hurdles trying to break free of the straitjacket forced upon them by societal and familial expectations. Her latest epic historical novel, The French Photographer, has recently hit the shelves in Australia to be followed by its release in North America in the Northern Spring. This author is a much sought-after public speaker, loves to teach creative writing courses and is a whiz on social media. Her novels are achingly poignant, enough to have you reaching for the tissue box. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Natasha Lester to the podcast today. Oh, it's so nice to be here. Thank you so much for asking me. Now, Natasha, I wanted to say congratulations on the publication of yet another beautiful novel in The French Photographer. Oh, thank you. It's a very exciting day today to be able to be, you know, to say when you're reading out that intro and saying sixth book, I was like, oh my God, yeah, it is too. <laughs> I hadn't actually done the done the maths until then. <laughs> now, Natasha, I wonder, having read about some of the background to this novel, did the end product resemble the story you had in mind when you first conceived it? <laughs> um, I'm laughing because <laughs> when I start writing, um, I have no idea what I'm doing. So... Um, it's it's kind of hard to answer that question because, no, the book never ends up where I think it will, but then I don't really know where it will end up either. Mm. So um, I do I did have to write a synopsis for this one um, for my publisher and, in fact, I should actually get that out and have a look at it and see how much it varies from the final product. I imagine it's quite a lot. Um, particularly with this one, I recall – when I started, I I really didn't know how it was going to end, I, and I knew there was, um, you know, the war storyline, a storyline to do with Victorine, the orphaned girl, and a contemporary storyline. But I had no idea how they were going to intertwine and interconnect and come to some kind of satisfying conclusion. So, so, um, so is it different? Yes, it it is because there were some things that I imagined would happen that didn't. In fact. I initially thought this was going to be a book more about what happened to Jess after the war um, because that was the part of Lee Miller's life that I found quite fascinating, that she was forgotten after the war and uh, unable to continue working in her profession because um, there were so many other men to do that job. Um, But then as I started writing, I realised that what happened during the war was even just as important and I wanted to cover that too. So, So, yes, it is quite different. Indeed. Now, I had the very great fortune to read this book before the official release date, and I loved everything about it. Um, Well, perhaps there were a couple of characters I wish you'd killed off. Um, (laughs) But for those who haven't read it yet, can you tell me a little bit more about it? Sure. So it begins in 1942 with Jessica May, who is a famous model for magazines like Vogue, and her modelling career is Uh, cut short quite abruptly and so she decides to try to do something with her photography skills that she's developed over the last few years and to try to gain accreditation as Vogue's uh, war correspondent working out of Europe covering the Second World War. She is able to attain that accreditation 
But she doesn't realise until she arrives in Europe that being accredited doesn't mean she's going to be allowed to actually do her job, which is to write and to take photographs of the war. Um, she realises very quickly that most of the men in the army are against the idea of women being anywhere near the war. Um, but three friendships that she makes in Europe change that. One of those is with Martha Gellhorn, who was an amazing correspondent and real person, also um, one of Ernest Hemingway's many wives. Um, and she helps Jess to kind of bend the rules so she can um, get her stories a little more easily. She also meets a paratrooper called Dan Hallworth, who takes Jess out to places where she can take photos and write stories that, that matter. And she meets a little orphaned girl called Victorine, who's grown up on a battlefield, and she forms a very strong bond with Victorine. There's also a contemporary storyline woven in there with um, a woman called Darcy Hallworth at its centre, who um, is an art handler, and the bulk of that contemporary storyline takes place in a beautiful French chateau in the Champagne region of France, which was a real trial to have to research, I must say. <laughs> I'm sure it was. <laughs> Poor you. I'm sure a lot of people are saying at the moment. Um, now, oh, you no. mentioned um, Lee Miller um, when yeah. we were talking just a little bit before, and um, your main character, Jessica May, is based on her life. Is that right? Yeah, so she's inspired by Lee Miller. I haven't stuck to the absolute facts of Lee's life, although I have used many of the things that happened to Lee in creating Jessica May, my main character. The main reason there was because I wanted to write a dual narrative and I couldn't do that with with sticking to all the absolute facts of Lee Miller's life. But mm. she was an incredible woman. So like Jess, she began life as a, a very famous model in the US, um, did a lot of work for Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, etc. Um, and then her modelling career was cut short in the same way that Jess's is. So I used all of those um, details from Lee's life. She then moved to Paris and met Man Ray, the famous photographer, and she became his lover for a while. And he taught her photography and so she then became a very renowned surrealist photographer before she ended up being accredited by Vogue as their photojournalist during the Second World War. Um, but then after she, after the war finished, she was assigned to uh, take photos and write stories about the celebrities visiting St. Moritz during the ski season and the kinds of things that compared to what she had done during the war must have been pretty challenging to then do, to write kind of fluff filler pieces. Um, she was also very, very depressed after the war. She'd seen so many terrible things and I think it would have been very hard to live with that. So she, her way of dealing with that was to pretend that she had never been a photojournalist during the war to the point that her son didn't even know that she'd had this whole other life during the war. And it wasn't until after she died that he found all of her photographs and negatives and her articles for Vogue, her correspondence with her editor, and all hidden away in an attic. And he realised it was quite a remarkable discovery and that his mother was this iconic, amazing woman and he resurrected her legacy. And now she's widely regarded as one of the war's preeminent photojournalists. Um, and there were so many aspects of her life that I couldn't help but be inspired by and knew that I just had to write a character inspired by her. It, it truly is an amazing story. Yeah, it really is. It's so sad, so much of it. Um, I mean, there were some terrible things happened to Lay during her childhood as well, um, which I think would have been really difficult to tackle in the context of this book too. So that was another reason why I uh, went for a character inspired by her rather than based on her life absolutely. Indeed. 
So just um, tracking back on some of the things that you've just said, one of the themes that you've highlighted so poignantly in this book is the situation of the many, many women who worked and played key roles during the war only to find themselves redundant afterwards. Yes, yeah. It's an, it's an amazing phenomenon, but, it, I mean, it happened worldwide, not just uh, yes. in Europe. It's quite amazing when you look at some of the uh, propaganda posters, basically, is, uh, there's no other name for them, mm. that were prominently displayed in America um, after the war, which these posters are basically showing women in aprons in the kitchen cooking roast dinners and the posters are exhorting the women to give up their jobs and to return to the home and make the spaces available to all the men coming back um, from the war who would need jobs much more than the women would need them because the women would have a man to support them. Mm. And this was the line that was, you know, shoved down the women's throats basically and really they were made to feel guilty for keeping holding on to their job and for staying in employment there was this horrendous survey um conducted that i looked at when i was writing the book and the survey was a the survey was conducted in the newspapers and it asked people what they thought the women should do um once the men returned from the war and something like 80 percent of respondents to the survey said that the women should all give up their jobs. That was the prevailing viewpoint at the time. Um, And there were so many stories of um, women doing extraordinary things who ended up uh, so one of the women was another uh, correspondent called Betty Watson and she was CBS's main reporter. She reported every day um, of the war so she was a broadcast journalist and she returned to New York thinking she would just take up a similar position only to be told there was no job for her. So she returned to uh, a magazine called McCall's and was writing about food instead of, you know, reporting on serious topics of the day. So there were so many stories like that that I came across. It was really quite shocking. Yeah, I can imagine. Now, you've just said women doing extraordinary things. And the thing that I've loved about all of your historical novels, Natasha, is that your characters are all brave, pioneering women, women who dare to go where others haven't gone before. They're not the archetypal kick-ass female hero. It's really important to me to write about women who were doing those quite unusual things in history um, that women just didn't do at the time because it's so important for me to look back and say if it hadn't have been for these women then I probably wouldn't have all of the opportunities that I have now today Mm. so I love to bring their stories to light and what I don't want to do is um, I think that sometimes writing a strong woman can become a little oversimplified um, and you know I feel like particularly in cinema and film, um, the the strong woman needs to be someone, you know, wearing a skin-tight bodysuit who can beat the crap out of everybody. Yeah. And that's not uh, – there are so many other elements of strength and that's what I'm trying to focus on in my books, showing women who come up against adversity sometimes fail to overcome that adversity mm-hmm. but continue to keep pushing just a little bit at a time and eventually, you know, get somewhere through that resilience, I guess, rather than kind of brute, violent strength. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much to unpack from this novel, Natasha, so many themes and intricacies of the plot that I would love to take my time over, but I fear we'll be here all day. (laughs) (laughs) There are a couple of things which I really wanted to chat about, and we've already touched on it a little bit. Um, and that is the sexist attitudes and blatant discrimination mm. against women during this time. Mm. And, you know, you've, you've already spoken about the propaganda posters. And, you know, despite all the all the wonderful work that women were doing in this time, um, yeah. they, they were still treated uh, the way that they were and, you know, just expected to go back and do, you know, 
be housewives essentially. Um, mm. And I wondered, did you find this difficult to write about? Um, what the main difficulty I had in writing about some of the things that Jess, my character, has to face during the war in terms of the way she was treated and, and all the other female correspondents were treated by the men in the army was that I thought that readers wouldn't believe that it really happened because I was gobsmacked when I was reading about some of these incidents. I, even growing up as a woman and facing, you know, sexism and discrimination, what those women had to face was so outrageous that it was hard to believe that it could really have happened. So, for me, the challenge was trying to write it in a way that the reader wouldn't go, oh, come on, that would never happen, mm. which is why there's quite an extensive author's note at the back of the book where I do highlight all of those things that were real um, that happened. There was one book in particular, um, it's called Never a Shot in Anger, and it was written by one of the public relations officers um, in the Second World War. So he was his job was to basically look after the correspondents and to make sure they were where they were supposed to be and following the rules and giving them story ideas and getting their reports through to the censors. And in his book, he recorded so many occasions where women were discriminated against, treated very poorly, um, you know, abused almost. But he doesn't have any understanding of that when he's writing it. It's just all, this is what happened. And he even laughs about it sometimes in what he's writing. And that was really quite hard to read. Um, but what it did do was it gave me the most brilliant understanding of the attitudes of the men at the time so that it wasn't just that they were stopping women from doing what they wanted to do. They believed strongly believed that that was the right thing to do to stop these women from from doing you know a job just like the men were able to do so um yeah so I so I did in that in many respects um difficult to read about and difficult to write about but I, I knew the whole time that it had to be written about um and that was like my mission almost as I was writing the book to make it turn it into fiction in such a way that readers would become immersed in it um without being didactic about it because sometimes when you get caught up in the research like that you can kind of bang readers over the head with it and become too dictatorial about it I guess and I didn't want to do that either indeed and I don't think you have done that I think no the, thank you <laughs> I think the, the my favorite um example of that would have been the uh, ra the rationale behind not allowing women to paratroop. Oh, I know, paratroop, it's just unbelievable, wasn't it? That was actually, it's funny you say, you know, it was hard to write, but writing Jess's rebuttal to what they were told that the women couldn't jump out of parachutes because they their female apparatus was too delicate and writing what she then, um, you know, yells at her PRO was actually pretty fun and I was thinking, God, I wish I could have done that well, <laughs> in real life. It's funny that you say that because my next comment was, Jessica is quite outspoken. I mean, even by today's standards, I think she was a very outspoken woman and she doesn't hesitate to call men out on the injustices that she feels are perpetrated against her and her and her colleagues. The thing that um, really helped me with writing those scenes was, you know, again, from the research, finding instances and occasions of women who did things like that. So um, there, you know, the, the letter about women's delicate female apparatus 
was an actual letter and there were a couple of women who protested quite strongly against that view. Um, you know, Martha Gellerhorn did stow away in the bathroom of a hospital ship to, try, to be the first woman to land on um, French soil post-invasion and women did write letters constantly to the public relations officers requesting permission to access the areas the men were allowed to access. So there were all these small instances of different women pushing back and fighting. And so I thought, well, okay, that's great that there there are these examples. Women did try um, and little bit by little bit they did make some headway. So it enabled me to think, okay, I can use all of those instances and occasions and give them to Jess. Um, and, you know, there are certainly also many occasions during the book where she doesn't say what she wants to because the risk is too great and she is too scared. But there are also some occasions when the provocation is so high mm. that she just explodes, which um, I would do. And I think that's also one of the things that I really enjoy about writing these kinds of stories is I think we or I write the character, the the woman that I wish I could be. I wish I could be that brave, as brave as Jess is. So I think that's part of what drives me as a writer. Yeah, that's fascinating. So another thing I wanted to address was the displacement of children. Um, the, many, mm. the many children orphaned by the war by being put on trucks or trains by their parents in their attempt to flee the German invasion. So what sparked this interest for you and how did that inform your story? So I came across the exodus of French people um, down to the south of France when I was writing The Paris Seamstress, and there is a small scene in that book about that exodus. So in May, late May and early June 1940, as the Germans are coming down through Belgium and northern France. Um, all the French people in the north and in Paris, well, not all of them, but a large majority of them, tried to escape uh, ahead of the German forces. And they all thought that if they got to somewhere south of the Loire River, they would all suddenly miraculously be safe. And there was no real um, reason for that thinking. It was just a widely held belief. It's one of those beliefs that, you know, kind of becomes viral for no real reason without any solid fact behind it. And so there were thousands and thousands of people migrating southwards through France on roads that were clogged with military vehicles, um, German planes strafing, lines of civilians fleeing um, as they flew overhead. And many, many people died. They were shot and killed by the Germans. There was not enough food and, and water to feed and nourish all those people that were moving at once. The towns on the way ran out of food. The congestion was so, fran so fierce that people just died being trampled, being run over, all that kind of thing. And as the as the exodus continued, many mothers in particular realised that the, their children were at risk in this mass movement of people. And so they did try to give them to convoys of army vehicles that were fleeing south as well. Anyone with anyone with a vehicle um, and enough petrol to get somewhere further down the line, because most of them were walking. Um, the cars that they had weren't up to the journey. They didn't have enough fuel. Um, so there was lots of abandoned vehicles on the way. So um, and when I was in Paris at the Musée de l'Armée, there was a, a movie, a film there showing um, live, live footage from the exodus. And it was very, very heartbreaking. In fact, one of my daughters couldn't watch it. She just burst into tears because it was, it was so sad. And in that movie, I saw a girl carrying a teddy bear 
and she was walking along and she was holding her mother's hand and she was looking directly at the camera and her face was so sad in a way a child of that age should never look that I just couldn't let her go. And so when it came time to write The French Photographer, she was in fact one of the very first um, inspirations behind the story and so she became the character of Victorine um, in the book. So we have the historical timeline, which is Jessica May's story, and then the contemporary timeline, which is a story focused on Darcy Hallworth. Where did your inspiration for the contemporary part of the story come from? Um, it came from a couple of things. I really wanted to go and stay in a French chateau. No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> Um, for some reason, from the outset, I knew it was going to be said in a French chateau because it just, oh no, it's crazy, isn't it? Because a lot of the chateaus were used um, by the troops during the war. And so I wanted it to be a place that resonated between the, the historical storyline and the contemporary storyline. And so um, that worked from a storyline point of view. Um, and But the main inspiration for Darcy came from um, an article that I'd read in the Australian newspaper, which was about the role of an art handler, which was something I'd never heard of before. Um, and an art handler is someone who travels with a painting or a photograph or an, an artefact when it's moving from one museum, say in London, to a museum in Australia for an exhibition. And so there's a whole lot of logistics behind the transportation of artworks, um, you know, customers' papers, condition reports, the very fact of it being on a plane and needing someone to travel with it to then make sure it's unpacked correctly at the other end and hung properly and kept in the right conditions and the right environment and all that sort of stuff. And I just thought, wow, what a fascinating job, you know, this kind of uh, you know, roaming existence around the world, traveling around with artworks. And so I knew I wanted to write a character who had that job. And then luckily that dovetailed nicely into um, the story of a, the historical story of a photographer. Um, and then the French chateau was just kind of the bonus setting for it all. <laughs> oh, that's, that's just brilliant. I love it. I love it. Uh, so the ugliness of the war and the treatment of women in this time is so beautifully contrasted by the love story at the centre of the historical storyline. And I mm. felt like it was a lifeline to which readers could cling to <laughs> amongst <laughs> all of that ugliness. Yeah. Such a beautiful yeah. story. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was really uh, – I knew from the outset of writing this book that I wanted to write a story about uh, two people who were – friends first and that that friendship was hugely important to them and sustaining and I think that you you would need something like that when you are traveling through a war zone facing atrocity after atrocity and having to photograph those things to look directly at them and and take photos of them with your camera and then to write about those things um you know I read so many um biographies about Lee Miller and the effect that taking photographs of those things had on her as well as a lot of other books um, one by Susan Sontag on um, war photography and um, what that experience is like for the people taking those photographs that I knew there had to be something something that would give life almost um, to Jess in the book and so that comes firstly out of her very strong friendship with Dan um, which as the story progresses turns into something more than that um, and I just like I say in the back of the book that Jess and Dan were literally two gifts from the writing muse and they really were like they I've never had two characters appear to me as fully formed as they did and they literally almost wrote themselves I, I don't know it was a very 
unusual writing experience writing those two and a beautiful writing experience and one I'm very privileged to have had. Natasha, not only are you a talented and busy writer but also a mother um, and I also understand that you teach courses on writing. Yes, I do. Although I have got to say I'm doing a lot less teaching this year than I have in the last few years, um, mainly because, you know, with the books now coming out in the US and the UK, you don't sort of, I used to get that a little bit of a reprieve towards the end of the year in terms of workload. Um, but, you know, it all ramps back up again from September when the books come out in the Northern Hemisphere. But I do still um, do a bit of teaching. I'm coming to the Romance Writers of Australia conference in Melbourne in August and I'm teaching my plotting masterclass there, which I'm really looking forward to. Now, I'm not exactly sure how you find the time, but I was interested to know if you might share something of your writing process with listeners. I'm contracted at the moment to write a book a year, so I'm not really allowed to take any longer than a year. Um, But that year is for the writing of the book, not the editing that kind of happens the following year. So for me, I pretty much my whole life is organised around school terms because my three kids are, um, I've still got two at primary school and one's just started high school. So they're young enough that they kind of need me around once school is over for the day um, and in the school holidays. So I always try and write a first draft of my book um, between February and April in that first school term. And I like to write that very quickly because I don't know what the story is um, in advance. I need to get it out of me quickly so I can find my way to the end of it. And then what I tend to do in the second term is um, I sort of do a month of no writing and I literally just throw myself into the research, read everything I can on the subject um, so that I can kind of fill in all the gaps in my very messy first draft. And then I'll write a second draft in that second term as well. And then third term, what a surprise, another draft of the book. (laughs) And then in fourth term, I usually do two different drafts, um, a fourth draft and then a final tidy up. And then I submit my manuscript to my publisher at the end of November, um, just in time for my kids to be on holidays on the 1st of December. I spend about three months of the following year working on the various editing phases for the book. So congratulations once more, Natasha, on a truly beautiful book. I wish you every success with it and for the upcoming tour. Thank you once more from the bottom of my heart for joining me on Talking Aussie Books today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was so lovely to chat to you. Lovely to chat to you. Well, that's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or drop me a line via my Instagram at Claudine Tinellis or on my webpage, claudinetinellis.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading.